Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. I am uh, still the co-host, despite my performance in last week's Rivals League, and uh, I am once again joined by BK Andrew Backstrom. Yeah, it was a, it was a rough weekend. I uh, went three and eight playing that uh, mono red deck that I was pretty happy about before the weekend. Yeah, the one saving grace about your performance with Mono Red was that you didn't really bring down the deck's win rate. It was just <laughs> overall very poor. It was like 29% overall in the weekend. Yes. Um, so, you know, uh, we'll get into that, uh, my reasons for playing the deck, some of what went wrong, because I think a good postmortem is always, a, is always a useful thing to do. And, we, of course, we got a lot of questions like, why did you play that deck? Would you play that deck again? But seriously, why did you play that deck? So uh, I, I have reasons for them, and uh, we'll get to those as soon as uh, we get into the podcast. Uh, our podcast, of course, is brought to you by ChannelFireball.com. And uh, one of the really cool things we've been doing uh, with CFB Pro are deep dives. Uh, Reed put out a wonderful deep dive recently, which is just getting into the mind of Reed Duke. Why does Reed Duke play the way he plays? What are his philosophies about magic? And... Uh, it's really worth checking out. Uh, he explains why he's never going to cast an Assassin's Trophy in his entire life. You know, that that sort of thing. And kind of like what makes him make these unconventional choices. Because one of the cool things about Reed, I've, I've had the, the pleasure and privilege of teaming with him, is he just kind of does the things he wants to do. And he has a lot of success doing them. In fact, had I chosen to play the deck he played this weekend, then I think I would have done a lot better. So you can go to channelfireball.com slash pro to sign up. And uh, again, the, one of the best benefits is we we get to do these deep dives. I've got to do one tomorrow. I'm going to think of some cool evergreen theory to talk about. But uh, you can you can check that out at, like I said, uh, channelfireball.com slash pro. And of course, use the code CR while you're at it. Help support the podcast. Well, what do you got for us for in terms of decks of the week, BK? Yeah, I started off by picking out Reed's Nye Adventures deck for one of the decks of the week. Um, it was a different take on the archetype in terms of how how much card draw he had. Um, this is a more controlling build than we are used to, sort of from Nye decks. We talked about sort of combo versions last week. But his build had four copies of the Great Henge alongside three copies of Showdown of the Scalds, and then we're pairing that with the Edgewall Innkeepers. Got some main deck fire prophecies, and one of the big omissions from the deck is zero copies of Embercleave. So not trying to really sort of beat people up that way. No, no uh, brush fire elementals. And then also got a copy of Yasharn and Placable Earth as a way to be better against the sacrifice decks of the format. Um, and overall, uh, this deck performed quite well for Reed. And like you mentioned, your teammates who played it. Uh, do you have any insight into sort of what went into deciding, hey, we want to play with a more controlling version of Naya this weekend? Yeah, there, there is a couple things. Uh, one is kind of funny, uh, which is Reed knew he was playing against Shota Yasuoka, and Shota had played a Rakdos deck the previous weekend, and Reed was pretty sure he was going to play Rakdos. And because of the way the MPL pairings work, because there's fewer players in the league, if you didn't play someone last split, you're guaranteed to play them this split. So I actually tested against Reed playing Shota's Rakdos list and lost to Yasharn a couple times. Reed's like, all right, we're set here. And then Huey played this list played against Shota, played Yasharn, and beat Shota on turn four or whatever. Uh, he also, Reed, identified that trying to kill them with Embercleave or Goldspan Dragon was just less productive than just playing the Great Henge and just look, just really aiming to dominate the mirror. All his, uh, all his decisions were kind of made at that regard. Three copies of Scavenging Ooze as the perfect curve. When you play the Henge, you immediately play a Scavenging Ooze. 
and uh, no copies of Brushfire Elemental in anticipation of there being a lot of uh, Bonecrusher Giants. Like, if you look at this deck list, the only cards that die to Bonecrusher Giant are Innkeepers, which you can just wait to play until after you've played or you're going to play an adventure card in the same turn. Uh, Giant Killers and then Scavenging Goose, which doesn't really die to Bonecrusher Giant when you play it later in the game. So he did a really good job of kind of insulating himself against the cards he expected to show up while uh, really having a good answers to to the decks that he expected to play against. And it was a it was a pretty level like 1.5 approach where he thought aggro was going to be good. And he thought a lot of people were going to play adventures to beat aggro. And he decided to to play a, an adventures deck that that really beat up on the other adventures decks. Um, it was pretty soft to Sultai, but didn't expect much Sultai. And I don't think that they played against any of the Sultai decks or at least very few of them. Yeah, it's interesting. One card, Scavenging Ooze is kind of tr- sneakily quite annoying for Sultai to deal with just because of the whole Heartless Act situation. You're oftentimes relying on that as your spot removal. And hard to kill a Scavenging Ooze with a Heartless Act. Uh, one of the other nice things, like you mentioned, um, being able to play cards directly off the Great Hand, you're playing with a copy of Mass Vandal on the main deck and sideboard. And that's just another nice way to be able to deal with problematic artifacts and enchantments, works with the Great Henge, and is immediately castable off of it. Yeah, and uh, that... Reed also likes zigging when other people are zagging. People were cutting Great Henges from their deck and playing fewer of them and leaning more on Embercleave and Dragon. So he expected fewer people to be prepared to play games against Great Henge. There's less, I need to kill your Lovestruck Beast right now, or you're going to play Henge. And granted, there are open deck lists, so it's not like people were surprised by that, but people were just less prepared to do these sorts of things. So it was yeah, a great... Yeah, less Embrace Shield Breakers and other people's Exactly. Decks. Great metagame call. Obviously, I wish I'd played the deck, given given the way things turned out. I played against seven adventure decks, but I, like I said, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, I got suckered into, in standard, I was playing in the Arena Qualifier Weekend, and I ended up settling on playing Sultai. And I wasn't going to play Sultai, we just, but the big thing was I got sucked into all of the hype from the Europeans, Andre Strasky and Stan Sivka, who had built it about how good a Sika's Chariot was. And it was very impressive. Um, that card working so nicely with Yorian, just such a beautiful little curve in a Yorian deck of turn three, grab Yorian, turn four, play Chariot, turn five, attack with Chariot, make a cat, blink it with Yorian, and now all of a sudden you just literally have five cats uh, to go along with your Chariot and your Yorian, and everything is, except for the two cats that you used to crew are untapped. Uh, a pretty nice little play against both Mono Red, Gruel, uh, Mono White. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough for to to be to make the Mono White matchup unbeatable. I beat it once in my round earlier in my run. Then at five and zero, oh, I played against it three straight times and lost three straight pretty close matches. It just it's just really hard to beat Faceless Haven with sweepers. And uh, Luis, you got to you saw a couple of my games, and it was like I had a couple of games where I literally could like. Shadows verdict people, and then it was like, yeah, I'm literally just at four with a faceless saving in play, so I guess I'm dead after this. Yeah, I mean, it, it just turns out that like turn three cultivate, turn four shadows verdict was just not good enough against White Weenie, and that reliably, you know, you can't you can't consistently have a draw that's much better than that. Yes, if you had turn two heartless act, turn three cultivate, turn four shadows verdict, sure, but like. That's just that's just, that's a draw that's going to happen less frequently than their normal draw of just tap their mana on turns one, two, three, and four. Yeah, and there's lots of ways that they can just mess with you. Like if they drop a Redain, like the turn after you cultivate, it's just like, oh, well, now I can't cast the Shadows Verdict till I get rid of the Redain, and now I'm taking a bunch more. 
Yep. Overall, so, you know, Sultai was okay, but not good enough to get me to day two. I played in another tournament, though, and that's where a Pioneer event. I played in the Pioneer Super Qualifier this week on Magic Online, and I worked last week with Josh McLean and Sam Party. Josh McLean did most of the testing and tuning of this build, but we, we went back to that Jun Sacrifice route with Bolas of Citadel in the Pioneer format. And so with a lot fewer counter spells in the format, this worked out quite nicely where we were able to once again ramp into the house and just play tons of cards off the top of our deck using Catacomb Sifter and Woe Strider to control the top of our deck. Uh, the big sort of new update to the deck is just the existence of Pathways. The mana base was never that good before, and Pathways are unbelievably awesome because you're just playing this three-color deck where you want all of your lands to come into play untapped. Your color requirements overall aren't too intense outside of the fact that like you need a touch of red for Mayhem Devil, you need eventually a bunch of black, and you need untapped green. And those sort of like long-term, I just need like this and that sort of thing is exactly what you want from a pathway where most of your cards are just using generic mana, but you do have a couple of intense mana requirements in the longer game. And it, it worked out quite nicely. Sam Party actually won the event or made it to the finals where both uh, f- finalists get an invite. And so congratulations to him. And I went seven and two in the event, missing out on top eight on tiebreakers. So a uh, fantastic run for Sam and uh, pretty happy with the work that we did. We also added Cat Oven back into the deck. We weren't playing that in the past, but without Uro in the format, it is a lot more viable against the mid-range and control strategies to nickel and dime people out. And you don't, and the idea of like, I'm going to drain you for two every turn in a way that's hard to disrupt actually beats people. But when they had Uro, it just kind of didn't. Yeah, I, I really liked what I saw from this deck. Uh, the, the fact that it needs single red, single green, and then just a bunch of black mana makes, makes it ideal for pathways. And just having a, that little bit of extra gas from the cat in the oven uh, really does seem to take the deck to the next level. If you remember, uh, I really like this deck. I played it in one of the showcases that I qualified for and uh, didn't quite get there, but this this new version seems a lot stronger. I also really enjoyed when I was watching you play a game, and and I don't know if you remember this, BK, but I, I told you right before you cast Collected Company that I hope you miss on Collected Company but still win the game. And lo and behold, that is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you – yeah, I can't be too mad at you because I did win that game, but it was really stupid that I my company was bad at the time. <laughs> uh, the other – what not a one other cool thing that I saw in Pioneer this weekend was I just saw people playing with – Isika's Chariot in Winota decks. And in particular, they were combining it with Thopter Engineer. A person made top eight with this of the Pioneer Championship Qualifier. And Thopter Engineer is a two and a red for a one three that gives all of your artifacts haste and makes a one one Thopter. And that is just so phenomenal with Isika's Chariot, where if you can ever curve the two into each other, you get to attack with Isika's Chariot the turn you play it. And since you're playing with Mana Dorks in that deck as well, you have the potential to be literally attacking with an Isika's Chariot on turn three. That's kind of like two turns faster than you would typically see that happen. So a real nice piece of tech. And obviously all of the cards I just mentioned still work phenomenally well with Winota. Uh, They're all just, with the exception of the Thopter Engineer itself, all these things are non-human. So they're going to proc the Winota. Yeah, that's a a cool combination. And don't sleep on Winota. I mean, this is a card that has been banned in a couple formats, has not been playable uh, at other points but it's really, really powerful. And when the right cards come together, like there's not that many cards that for four mana can put 10 mana worth of stuff into play, like uh, immediately. That, But Winota can actually do that. Yep, we'll have to see. There's always going to be, 
you know what? There's a pretty decent chance that in the next couple of magic sets, there will be both non-humans and humans. Those seem to be almost really all magic creatures fall into one of those buckets. <laughs> I mean, that, that 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 is actually a really good point that it's the, also the kind of card that just scales every single set. Like, you know, you, you look at like a snow card from Kaldheim that's strong, like Frostbite. Well, it's clearly not going to get better as new sets come out because it's not like there's going to be more snow cards. But a card like Winota, every single set, you know, makes it stronger and stronger. It's kind of a kind of like Michelle's Workshop and Vintage, where every third set there's a new artifact that just meet, leads to something getting restricted. Because turns out when you shave two man off the cost of every artifact, some of them end up being good enough. All right. So this week, Luis, we're going to dive into the mailbag. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to get your questions in, uh, Luis typically puts out a call for questions. So uh, you know, we do this about once every two months or so. Uh, this is probably like our third mailbag episode now, something like that. And so we've got a bunch of questions here from the readers, and we're going to get right into it with Olsen8401's question. What cards would you most like to see added to Historic? That, that is a good question. Uh, thinking about cards that I've enjoyed playing that uh, I, I think would pro- would be an upside to, for Historic. Um You know, I, I I wouldn't mind. I I guess I wouldn't mind Birds of Paradise. I think there's some definite dangers of that, but I I have typically enjoyed formats where Birds of Paradise are legal, so that 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 would definitely push the one drop accelerant part. But creature decks being good, I think, is generally a good thing. Uh, what what's something that that you would like to say? Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a little greedy, and I'm just gonna take like the entire year's worth of Magic sets from Cons of Tarkir through Magic Origins. In Cons of Tarkir, I'd love to be able to combine some of the newer like spell stuff, like Is It Phoenix stuff, with some of my old favorite Just Guy stuff, like Jay's Friends Prodigy, Mantis Rider, all that kind of good stuff. Um, and then we we're also talking about getting Abzan Charm, all the all the all the good classic Abzan nonsense from there. And well, then you, once you, you didn't even it, say Siege Rhino when you said the Abzan cards. Oh, you know, I didn't want to give anybody. Also, can you can you remember? It was a simpler time when Siege Rhino was the card that was too good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lightning Helix. Do you want a four drop? Ooh, um, it didn't. Also, it didn't. It, it it just it just drained for four. It didn't also Earth for three. It didn't also make four mana and draw a card. Um, anyway, and then uh, dra- once we get the Dragons Tark here, all the Dragon stuff was pretty dope. Like getting to play like some of the Esper Dragon stuff again would be a good time. So. Um, and that's sort of like I like that sort of stuff, like adding more old sets and more like old packages of cards um, more than like any particular cards like that. More of my fondness comes from the old formats more so than like, oh, they added Dark Confidant or whatever. Now I get to play with Dark Confidant again. Yeah, I, I, that's actually a, a, a good point where it makes Historic feel more like a real format than like the historic anthology, like, yes, it shakes up historic. That's all fine. That does make the format more interesting. But it doesn't contribute to me feeling like historic is a real format. Like, it's clearly a real format. People play it. I'm not denigrating people who enjoy historic. But modern is sets from mirrored and onwards. Pioneer is sets from, what, like 2016 and onwards or whatever it ends up being. You know, historic is dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like, historic is sets that were on arena plus a selection of really random old powerful cards so and and not powerful cards just random you know so it's really hard to define what historic is if you try to define it because i don't think that there's an easy way to do that 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's great about Magic is how long it's been around and getting to trace all that lineage. And it's nice, like, when you see something like a card in an old frame, you know, like, oh, okay, I know what era of Magic this is from. And it's not it's not confusing <laughs> or anything like that. <laughs> well, th- that, that of course, uh, is a reference to the fact that there's going to be a bunch of cards that are now in old frames, which I do love, of course. Uh, you know, me, me and Pat Cox were just talking about this. We saw someone tweet, like, you know, with these recent bandings, modern now 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 is back to the the format I grew up playing and loving, and we were just like, oh my god! Like modern came out when we had been playing Magic for fifteen years and we're twenty six years old or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then there's this you know someone saying like, this is the format I grew up playing, and it's just like, yeah. All right, well, <laughs> let's not look at years. Uh, oh yeah, now. we know you're a Magic boomer. Oh um, yeah, that, there was it was there was never never a question. Yeah. All right, uh, from uh, Captain Harlock. Uh, how good would Tybalt's trickery have to get before it's banned in standard? And in our testing, was there any attempt to break it? So we've talked about this a bit when we've touched on banned and restricted stuff, but the threshold for Tybalt's trickery to, to get banned in standard is quite a bit lower than the threshold for something like Embercleave to get banned in standard, uh, where in order for a, a Tybalt's trickery to get banned, I think it would have to just be like, if it was a tier one deck, like not better, but not worse than like the top three decks. I believe it, the, there's a decent chance it would get banned. Like I, I actually think that it would be very likely it would be get banned. If, yeah, if it's it, kind of yeah, it's kind of weird to just talk about it in terms of like how good it would need to be because it's like it's not really going to be about that. The games with Tibble tick, Trickery, like playing against that, the games are so bad. Like, yeah, they're so bad that if it was if it was like reasonably popular, but it was still really bad. Like, and by reasonably popular, I mean, like, if you play it, I don't know what the threshold might be, but if it's, like, if it got, like, consistently above 10% of your games were against Tybalt's Trickery, I think they might do something about it. I mean, one of the things that's nice about Arena is, like, you know, it's not that hard to do queries, like, oh, I wonder how likely was somebody to end their session after they played against a certain card, and it would be, like, Tybalt's Trickery would be, like, oh, wow, that's pretty high, or whatever. Yes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, like... Uh, in terms of test, like in terms of testing it in standard, I mean, you could speak for your team. There's not really anything you can do with it in standard. Like you can just, I played against it actually in the SCG like a week or two ago. Like my opponent, like their entire deck was just like fatty boom booms, some ramp, and then like eight zeros and four Tybalt's trickery, and they were that was just like their thing. Is like they had a fallback plan, but it was their deck was so bad. Like if I just literally when I saw their deck list, I could just mulligan into a drown in the lock. And if I was on the play, I could never lose. And yeah, and it, and a lot of their spells were blue. So if I mulligan to a mystical dispute on the draw, I could oftentimes not really lose. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, Andrea Mangucci stream some standard Tybalt's trickery, and it was just like, this just looks like the worst deck I've ever seen. Which, to be clear, is not a bad thing. I think that, uh, that the threshold for just getting banned would be really low for for the for the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, Kemi McGee says... No love for the upkeep step. <laughs> Jokes aside, I'd love to hear more about how removing the upkeep step would tidy up the Magic the Gathering rule set. So this right, is here's the, oh god. Dan. Oh, I was just gonna say this is something I've talked about a few times, so I, I know why they're asking this question. Yes. Um, the biggest thing is that it is great for the turn to have a fl- it flow that players can do again and again and again, and. When the turn starts with drawing a card, that's great. You start the turn, you untap your cards, you draw the card, fantastic. When 
the existence of permanents and lands and and any kind of like suspended cards means you need to do maintenance and upkeep before you draw your card. Otherwise, if you draw your card, you have technically bypassed the step of the game, and now you have missed your opportunity to get your trigger, to get your effect, to activate your ability that can only be activated on the upkeep. And what it does is it just makes it a lot harder for people to just literally play a turn. If you can just start your turn by just taking care of all of the bookkeeping of untapping and drawing first, and then deal with all of, like, scan your field for triggers... It is just going to make turns flow a lot smoother and we're going to have a lot less stress for everyone to deal with. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that like I understand why the upkeep was made and uh, the, the like the reasoning behind it. And I also understand that it was created, you know, 28 years ago or what have you, probably 29 because it was probably made even before Magic came out. Richard Garfield came up with this idea. But look, I'm not tackling, oh, how, how hard it would be to, to, to fix all the previous cards and all that. This isn't going to happen. I'm not under any illusions. But I think that Magic would be a, just a, a pretty solidly better game. Like it's a, it's a it's a non-zero percentage of an improvement to not have the upkeep. And there's a reason I think Saga's trigger on your on your main phase after you draw because that's just a better time to do it. And that 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 was actually one of the things that that led me to think that this or led me down this path. It's like, oh, if Saga's do it, like yeah, why why do things do it that way? So. I don't think that there's really any advantage to having the upkeep. I don't think there's any chance of it changing, really, because it just seems like a mess to untangle. But I just think it's a good thing to yeah, point Yeah, I out. mean, there's a, right, there's a big difference between remo- trying to remove the upkeep and, like, eradicating all those cards. And it is probably not worth it for them to do that because it would just be too hard to, like, re- keep the functionality of a lot of cards. Like, you know, you could make cards which sort of had replacement like every card that's like at the beginning of your upkeep scribe before you draw for instance you you could in the future make those so it's like a replacement effect so that like or something which is allowing you to look at the top card before you draw and you could probably still preserve those designs going back and fixing all of those cards to make them work under a new rule set without the upkeep is probably not worth it the big thing is like like sagas it should probably be the norm that Cards are templated like sagas if they're going to happen at the beginning of your turn. And it is, and I wish they were doing that. And then, but they stopped doing that. And it's, it doesn't really, like these cards don't work well. Like when you play on arena and you need to manipulate things in your opponent's upkeep or your opponent's draw step, it's just like a mess. It's a waste of time. It's, you just have to like click through a bunch of times to just get through. Everyone has to just do a bunch of clicking to just get through all of this. And it would be nice if at least the modern magic cards were just more functioning like sagas were. Because I, mean, I think everybody likes sagas. How disconcerting is it to you're on playing arena or magic online, you draw your card, but then your opponent doesn't let you have priority to go to your main phase? Oh, it's insane. It's yeah. so bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, our, our next question was asked again a bunch of times. It's, it's why did you play Mono Red? Like, really, why did you choose that deck for this weekend? And I, and I can kind of yeah. lay out the logic. Uh, it's a combination of things. And, you know, going three and eight at one of these one of these events is not easy to do. That's that's well below 50 percent. Right. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, you 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 really have to try to, to lose that many matches. And uh, maybe you have to try. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I'm, uh, I'm sure plenty of our listeners are like, I don't feel like I had to try that hard. <laughs> uh, so, well, I mean, 
I think that a, a baseline of like around a 50-50 win percentage in the Rivals League is not unreasonable for most people because everyone there is, is, is good. But winning three out of uh, 11 matches is, is enough below that that like something went wrong. And in this case, a few things did. All right. So here, here's kind of what happened. Um, one is that in our testing games, Monored did really well. And that is the sort of thing that like, yes, we're not dealing with, you know, massive sample sizes and we're aware of that. But you, we still played a lot of games, and not, I'm not talking about ladder games because we don't really keep track of those. I mean, talking about games against teammates, and it had a good win percentage in games against teammates. And it's like, okay, so first of all, it feels like this deck is 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 doing well, right? And and I can look at the numbers. The second is that uh, our estimation of how many adventure decks there were going to be in the field was like a little low, not super low, a little low. And then I played against seven adventure decks out of eleven rounds, so that already like. It's like these things all compound where the Adventures matchup was a little worse than I thought it was in testing. Like in testing, I thought Adventures was favored, but it wasn't a, a, a massive favorite. It turns out it was actually a massive favorite. Like they they really were ahead of Monored. And then to compound that, I played, you know, 30% more matches against Adventures than I would have expected to given the actual metagame that showed up. And then I, I made a couple high leverage mistakes, like mistakes in really in really bad spots to make mistakes. I didn't leave up Frostbite when I had a, a Torbrand in play and then died to a Goldsman Dragon combo, which was really easily avoidable. Like that's the sort of thing, like that right there would have meant I went four and seven instead of three. I straight up threw a match. Technically, they had one card in hand I didn't know. And if it was exactly Sejiri Shelter, I still would have lost. But, you know, I, I think that's very likely that I would have won that game because it was they were just dead on my turn. And then lastly, I think I did run a little below average. I mean, I, I had just a lot of games where I juiced six or seven lands and no faceless havens or a game where I played Ox discarding two lands, drew three lands, then drew two lands in a row after that. Like, yeah, those, those games are going to happen. You kind of hope that, that all these things don't happen at once. But when you pick a deck, a deck that's not a good choice for the field, when you get more of your bad matchup than is present in the field overall, and then you don't play very well, and then you get unlucky – you're not going to have a good time. And I did, you know, that that's kind of how I ended up uh, losing. And some of these mistakes I'm going to make again, some of these are just hard to avoid. Like I don't have the time to pay 300 test games. I'm not going to, but when I play, you know, 50 to 70 games and try to figure out matchups from there, sometimes I'm going to get it wrong. That's just going to happen. And I, and I, you know, that's not something that, that I feel like I really screwed up by doing. So, the the things that are avoidable is well I can play better, <laughs> you know that's always a, a a a good step, and maybe have a you know try to figure out why our, our estimation of the field was a little off. It wasn't even that off. I think it was mostly that the matchup was different than we thought, and then you know the, all the other things I mentioned. So that's kind of how I ended up playing mono red. Obviously, I, I do regret it in the sense that like I did poorly, and uh, my team had a deck that won two thirds of its matches, which is a lot better place to be instead of less than a third of its matches. But here we are, and uh, well, I got to continue playing. I mean, that, that's really all there is to it. Yep, and. We'll be rooting for you. And uh, I, I thought about saying something on like social media after it wasn't going well, but I didn't want to make fun of you for your deck choice or shame you in any way for that. Um, all right. From uh, I, you, you, you never really have to hold back there, just so you know. Oh, okay. Because I won't. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. I know. Uh, uh, hey, Hokey Hopia. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Was Aldrazi Tron ever good? Wow. What a deep question. I actually think that there was one tournament where it was actually a decent choice. 
<laughs> it's been good a couple of times. I mean, I don't know. Like maybe Luis, you don't you don't play as much modern as maybe I have in the past. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's flowed in and out. I mean, it's a lot of it has to do with like how good is Walking Ballista, how good is Chalice of the Void. There's a period of time where like Once Upon a Time was helping that deck out quite a bit in modern. And um, I, I think in general, like London Mulligan has helped out Eldrazi Tron. Um, I thought the Eldrazi Tron deck was quite good in um, when Death's Shadow was first bursting onto the scene, um, like right after those guys, uh, Raptor and those guys crushed GP Vancouver, and then I played in the Team GP in San Antonio. So, uh, yes, if you have a time machine and you there were some tournaments, I would recommend you go back and register Eldrazi Tron. Yeah, I, I actually liked it uh, at uh, PT Barcelona, the the Hogak PT. I actually thought Eldrazi Tron was a solid choice there. People playing Eldrazi Tron with like a bunch of ley lines and Chalice to stop Nature's Claim, I think was was, was not unreasonable because the deck happened to be good against people trying to beat the Hogak decks. Where are you playing like... I forget, were people playing like Karn and Staring Bridge? Yeah, they were playing those. So so frequently you'd put Hogak in a position where they needed to to kill your, your Karn on like turn three or four, or they would just lose the game on the spot. So uh, Yeah, uh, that deck could definitely do that though. <laughs> yeah. Uh Dennis Vogel asks, as in enfranchised legacy and vintage players, how do you feel about universes beyond and its potential impact on those formats? Does the potential of Space Marine Aggro or Gandalf control uh, as tier one decks excite you or turn you off of those formats. So this is so, talking about yeah. the, the the IP broadening or adding outside IPs. Like we already know Lord of the Rings and Warhammer 40K, and this implies Transformers or you know plenty of other Hasbro and non Hasbro properties. Um, mostly. I mean, like I don't. So Luis, you're certainly more of a vintage player than I am, and I play some Legacy from time to time. I. I mostly just enjoy those sets being about the the cards that were in standard sets. Um, so I'm not really going to be thrilled, but I'm, I can't say it's like going to bother me like a lot more than, for instance, um, the commander stuff showing up. Yeah, I, 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 I do not have really much in the way of negative feeling towards these things. Like, Sure, some of it could end up being kind of hokey, like I made a joke tweet when when it came out, and it's probably for the best that these are not going to be standard legal. But I, I overall am like in favor of, I don't know, trying cool stuff. We've had many, many years of magic the way it is, and you know them making up the planes they go to, and that that all that's all well and good. But I I think that crossovers offer the opportunity for something really cool, and I don't really see a big downside. Like. We're playing a game of elves and dragons and Eldrazi and, and you know, the, all these things. And sometimes there's flavor wins like, you know, giant ox pulling a colossal plow. And sometimes you're equipping a sword of feast and famine to your birds of paradise. And it really doesn't even make sense within magic either. So uh, the fact that sometimes it's going to be, you know, Gandalf getting pitched to force of wills, you know, is totally fine. Yeah, I in terms of like cards from outside standards that's coming in, I would say that. I generally like them a little bit more when they're answers to things and they're like, it's nice that they can take this opportunity to like make a specialized tool that is like, it makes sense as a magic card, but it would be hard to like have it fit into a standard set. Like it, it was pretty like Lavinia is, I think like a magic card, which like does good work in legacy and vintage. And I almost kind of wish to some degree that that had just been like in a commander product because that was such a bizarre card to open in a War of the Spark draft pack. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it, 
sometimes there's these like hyper targeted answers that just feel I don't know. I remember the first time I saw a great Sable stag. For those not uh, not aware, this was uh, in one of the core sets. It was like M10 or something, and it was like or M11. I don't remember. One green green for a three three pro blue pro black can't be countered, and it was like, oh, this is to beat fairies exactly, and like volcanic fallout. One red red deal two to each creature and player can't be countered, and it's like. Yeah, I mean, this is just not an elegant card to make, and I understand what you're trying to get at, but it feels like we could do better, you know? Uh, another question here from uh, Savia Wander is, uh, do you think formats are always better with more quality mana fixing, or is there too much of a good thing, or such a thing as too much of a good thing? Thinking about the Cloud Thresher Cruel Ultimatum days, these are when... Uh, when Lorwyn was in standard, and because of Reflecting Pool and the Vivid Lands, the lands that ETB tapped and uh, can tap for any color twice, that that combo means Reflecting Pool just tapped for all five colors. And there were decks playing, you know, Cruel Ultimatum, Cloud Thresher, Wrath of God, Green, 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 Two, Two, White, White, Blue, Blue, Black, 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 Red, Red. So basically triple color of every single color and without issue. And yeah, I would point to that as there being too much fixing. I think that that cheapened the distinction between colors and made it so decks just played the best, you know, the best 32 cards in, that that were in the format in 28 lands. Yeah, I mean, I had the experience. The other, the other like, notable peak in standard mana fixing was uh, Battle for Zendikar standard when you had the fetch lands and the battle lands and people were just literally playing four-color collected company decks, like, no problem at all. Uh I, I mean, it's hard to like sort of answer your question like better with more. I mean, I think it's a sliding scale. I think it's good if standard formats have different mana bases. Like sometimes it's nice if you can actually build like it's nice every once in a while where you can like literally build a three color aggro deck with one drops like we had with like Just Guy. And, you know, it's you got to see a little bit of that with like Mardu Knights and things like that. It's it's good to have the games play out differently and mana is such a nice way to do that. Both obviously not everybody gets to play the same cards because of the mana based system, but then also like it is actually a meaningful and interesting puzzle to solve how you're going to sequence your cards in the early game. And I think about that in the context of like Demir rogues and standard right now, it's very notable that Demir rogues does not have a blue black comes into play untapped land. And it makes sequencing with that deck very intricate, but not in a way where it's like, brain overload it's just it's just literally hard to do to have play like all of your one drops in the first two turns of the game and if the mana base because you know you can't play thieves guild enforcer and ruin crab off of the same land you just can't do that and that's oftentimes exactly what you want to do you want to go turn one ruin crab turn two thieves guild enforcer and another rogue but you just literally can't do that off of the same lands and it's it's nice that you have to like actually map out with that deck which things do I value getting to play first this game? Which color do I value having up on this certain turn? When am I going to get my tap land into play? And if the mana was just perfectly smooth, it would just make the experience just like, okay, well, it's turn one, I play out of one drop. Turn two, I play two more one drops. And it's just the same thing every single time. But it's sometimes you really have to figure out, oh, I could get down two one drops early, but then I won't have three mana untapped for turn three when I have didn't say please in my hand. And making that kind of trade-off is a skillful decision and a fun decision. Yeah, I think that... The ebb and flow is always really important when it comes to to standard formats, and it's in particular because eternal formats, by definition, don't really ebb or flow. They they just get new things added to them, and it is interesting. You know, it, it as as a good friend of ours, Patrick Sullivan, he likes to use the word texture a lot, right? 
you know, when you have burn spells like right now in standard, almost none of the good burn spells go to the face. And that it just, that means playing against a mono red deck at five life is a pretty meaningfully different experience than playing against uh, a deck that got to play like, you know, lightning strikes or a, a deal four. And that there being at five life against them, you feel like you're very close to just getting burned out. Here, when you play against one of these red decks, you're not really worried about them burning you out because Bone Crusher Giant's the only face damage that's getting played. No one's really playing Tundra Fumeral. And the manifesting the same. I think it's yeah. I think it's interesting sometimes when you have to struggle to to build mana bases that are that are like you know too ambitious, or you have to worry, like you said, about like your lands each only tapping for single colors of mana, so you can't so it taxes your one drops. But sometimes it's good to have good mana where three to five color decks are things you can play. And I think Battle for Zendikar was actually a pretty nice spot where because of the interaction of fetch lands and the different fetchable lands and, and, and try lands, you could play three or four colors, but actually five was meaningfully harder than, than four. Like you saw a lot of fours and not very many fives in those, in those formats. Yeah. Let's just agree though, that it was super weird that like your green, white, your windswept teeth was like a blue, red duel or whatever the nonsense was. Yeah, the, the, it was weird that because of an uneven distribution of those lands, some of the fetch lands could get like just like some colors, but not others. And you really, it did. It, I think it actually the downside, I think, actually, is that, yeah, that did put too much mental load on like, OK, I need to fetch a prairie stream. Do I have two basics? This fetch land gets these four colors, but not the fifth color, that sort of thing. Yeah, the, it was it was a while. It was one of the weirdest um formats we've ever had one thing i think it we could go deep on like the stuff all i could talk about this stuff all day one thing i like is when they they bake in the standard um like a, an archetype or two that allows you if you buy into that archetype to get access to better mana fixing and it stops it from bleeding out everywhere so like in kaladesh standard like spire of industry and some of the artifact stuff would allow you to be more play more adventurous decks in terms of what colors you could support and right now in standard there's some of that with the snow decks in terms of like Path to the World Tree is a card that could really opens up some options for additional five color fixing beyond just what's possible with the the, the normal lands. So I th- I think that right now the the fixing's in a decent spot with like triomes and cultivate and 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 whatnot. You're not going to see that many uh, four color decks or five color decks compared to how many three color decks you, you'll see. One one knock against the current mana bases and standard is that Faceless Haven, much like Mutavolt, is such a powerful land that pushes you so heavily to monocolor. You really can't play a two color snow deck. You get one two color duel, and from and that's it. And it, it, that that's just not not great. Like the is it Dragon deck did that, but it, even then it was it, it, it I think struggled to activate Faceless Haven. You're gonna see more monocolor decks because of how powerful Faceless Haven is, and that 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 it can get a little bit old. Yeah, there, there's gonna be a lot of pressure for them to make some really good gold aggro cards and uh, and other similar incentives to ensure that it doesn't become there's because there's gonna be so much pressure to just. Cut the second color from any aggro deck whenever you can to just play Faceless Haven. Um, I, it was a big thing with Mutavault, and I think it's going to be a similar thing moving forward. Yeah, I think the combination of Mutavault and Devotion in the original Theros era standard was one of the low points for interest levels in standard. And part of the reason is if you took a mono blue Devotion and a mono black Devotion deck list from the start of the format, which were both tier one decks, and you and you just fast forwarded a year to the end of that year, 
they didn't change any cards. They added like one card each out of the next two sets or something. And that, that gets old. That's just too much. Like you, you, you want your cards and your decks to rotate a little bit more frequently than that. Yeah. And it, it, it builds on itself. Yeah. I mean, all right. Jiffy pop or wants to know what's your process after a tournament, either a successful or an unsuccessful one, both in terms of evaluation of your actual gameplay, new meta and how you manage the mental aspects. How do you get out of a funk from a bad tournament is difficult. But what do you do to ensure you don't just settle after a win? <laughs> so one thing that I've always noticed happens, and I don't know how, how what your experience has been because uh, you've never really let me team with you. But like on the teams I've, I've been on, whenever the team has like a bad or medium tournament, everyone's like, what did we do wrong? Our process is broken. We need to fix our process. And it's like, no, you know, sometimes you just have bad tournaments. Like I'm not trying to say like you shouldn't improve, but it's funny how how, how even – even pros who you think would be like accustomed to all this variance very go very quickly to like we had deeply flawed, flawed testing we must have screwed up a lot like th- this last weekend is a good example of that we're like yeah I think I got some stuff wrong this weekend but I don't think it's indicative of necessarily a hugely flawed testing process look I've been involved in hugely flawed testing processes <laughs> I know what those look like it this is just a, a a case of like getting some stuff wrong having to play a little better you know trying to figure out like how can I make the best decisions but without, you know, kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying like, hey, the way you prepared here was wrong. I mean, this is the same way I prepared the last couple of weekends where I did well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it's important to not burn yourself out. Like it's it's a pretty susceptible time right after a tournament. You're already kind of running low and you can it's it's easy to sort of chase the idea of like trying to like figure out what you did wrong and all of that. And it just and just play a bunch to like understand better um in terms of just trying to like learn from each tournament you just try i mean if you it's not really hard in the sense of if you are dialed into what you are doing and what was going on in your games it's for me and i'm guessing for Luis, it's usually we're at the point now where it's like pretty obvious like sort of what went wrong in our games um and in terms of like preparation and what deck choices you made it's pretty easy to figure out what assumptions went if we just missed a deck. The hard part is like figuring out the whole holistic sort of approach where you sort of get much better at all of those things. Um, and in terms of not settling after a win, well, after I've had successful tournaments, I you just I, I think it's honestly it's not there hasn't been a point in the magic calendar where it's been like so important after a really good tournament that you do so well in the next one that this has been like a valuable skill. Honestly, the bigger thing is just like after a successful tournament, just just giving yourself a chance to enjoy it because you don't get it that often. And sometimes you can go stretches where you just don't have a good tournament. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, managing managing burnout is actually like the big, the biggest skill you need for long-term success in Magic because eh, part of it is just taking a lot of shots. Like, how many people do we know that, like, played in 30 PTQs and didn't qualify for the Pro Tour, but were definitely good enough to do so? We know know a lot of those people, you know? And, you know, how many people do you know that, like, have played a bunch of PTs and are definitely good enough to top eight and and just haven't gotten there yet? It's just because Magic is ultimately a numbers game in a lot of the ways that matter, and you, 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 you really need your number to come up. You need to have a good deck. You need to play well. You need to get good pairings. You need to, you know, 
instead of mulliganing, don't mulligan, right? You, you know, your opponent's the one who mulls to five and you don't mull to five in game three. Or, you know, you're the one who top decks the lightning bolt and your opponent's at three instead of top decking the mountain. And every every single Magic player with great accomplishments has a lot of the situations where they're the one top decking the lightning bolt because that that's how you get there. There's a lot of great Magic players who have you know, fewer accomplishments than they quote unquote deserve. I don't really think of deserve in that way, but like, you know, people who are at X skill level and playing Y tournaments. And if you ran those tournaments over and over again, they would have three top eights, but instead they have one or zero. And some people who would have one top eight have five, you know, that sort of thing. So it it's the sort of thing where if this is something you want, and I think there are a lot of valid reasons to want success in magic. It's really rewarding and can be really fun. You just have to be aware that sometimes you're going to have to play a lot of tournaments just to to have things line up the right way. And and as a result, how you react to a tournament in terms of your mental state is in a lot of ways more important than what you learn from it. I've played in like the last two weekends, I've played three events which had outs of qualifying me for like the next set championship. And I, my, I was just adding it up. My combined record in those three events is like 19 and 7. And it's and I didn't get anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> like, like, it's, it's, you can't really do any better than that. But yeah, that's you, like a seventy five percent win rate or something like that. You know, seventy two percent win rate. And yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we make the joke a lot, but like win rates at different times count for different amounts. And and you, maybe you should have picked your spots at at, at a different time. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. All right. I I love this next question because I've got a good answer for it. You both talked from uh, Yami Karibo. You both talked a lot about Splinter Twin, but how do you feel about Birthing Pod being unbanned and modern? You can't do it. They printed cards which have broken Birthing Pod, and I'll give credit to Ari Lax for pointing this out. Um, Corridor Monitor just broke Birthing Pod and modern. Now, you could maybe ban Corridor Monitor, but that's kind of a weird thing to do. Um, You're going to have to tell people what Corridor Monitor does. Corridor Monitor is a two-mana one-four. It comes into play, untaps, a target artifact or creature. So here's how it goes. Turn one bird, turn two pod. Turn three land drop is lethal. You go bird, quarter monitor. You you turn that into a quarter monitor. Then quarter monitor untaps the pod. You get renegade rallier. It brings back quarter monitor. It untaps pod. Then that turns the renegade rallier into restoration angel. That blinks the quarter monitor, untaps the pod. And now we kiki plus corridor monitor, which is lethal. We turn the restoration angel into a kiki jiki. And those two cards just go infinite together. And so like... I don't know if we're if we're at the point where we're like immediately going to unban birthing pod so that we can ban something else. It's like just let's just leave birthing pod banned. As you were explaining that, I was like nodding my head like that Jack Nicholson like uh, you know video like, like yeah yeah. <laughs> I mean that's not even cool though. Like yes, it's, it's, it's you literally need a one drop and a birthing pod. Yes, that's it. That's it. Uh, all right. Well, uh, next question. <laughs> uh, the. Let's see. Uh, Legacy Memes asks, regarding the past week of burnout of the Rivals League and everything that ended up taxing the players, do you wish that some competitive changes were reverted? Do you believe there's any changes that can further improve the competitive environment? Much love you. Well, much love to you, Legacy Memes. Uh, yeah, you know, in order to not spend like the whole show talking about uh, OP and the, the failures thereof, uh, the, the the biggest thing I wish for organized play, honestly, without getting into like the nitty gritty of like, how does how should league play work or how should the tournaments work is like... I wish it was more aspirational again. I wish that people who are not currently in one of the leagues felt like they had a good chance to reach the highest levels of magic. I believe that is the biggest thing missing from OP that was present when they switched uh, off of the old pro club system to the MPL. 
the way you know the Magic Pro Tour used to work, and if you weren't around for that or for you know after the past couple of years, anyone could spike uh, a PTQ or Grand Prix and get play in a Pro Tour, and then they had the opportunity there to spike the Pro Tour, to top eight the Pro Tour, you know, do, and and from there kind of catapult themselves into contention for hitting the highest levels of of organized play, whether that. Is stringing like, you know, kind of a classic path is like you top eight a GP, you top 32 a PT, you play the next PT and you do well and you you hit like gold or you do really well and you hit like platinum, you know, or, or you start the season as uh, silver and you get an extra invite and then you play the first two PTs and you do well enough to earn another invite and then you hit gold. And we're not talking like you have to top eight two PTs in a row or win a PT. We're just talking about like a sustained level of success. Like you, you mentioned going 19-7, like having a bunch of, you know, finishes where you're not even necessarily hitting the, the like top top, like you're not making the finals of the PT, but you're going like 12 and 4 or uh 11 and 5 at a couple tournaments, maybe interspersed with a couple grand prix finishes, and all of a sudden you you are as much part of organized play as platinum pros and hall of famers, right? You now I mean you you've gone through this you know yourself BK, like you like won a team GP you had like decent finishes at like a pro tour or two. And then all of a sudden, like you were qualified for all the tournaments. You could go and play against all the best players in the world. And, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, oh sorry. Didn't mean to cut you off. It's um, there. And there, there are some elements of the things that you're describing right now in terms of like, if you make it to a set, if you can make it to a set championship and you could spike that, you could play in a gauntlet event, which could get you into rivals. I think the big thing is just like, Magic players like playing in magic tournaments and magic events. And most of the OP system is not really built around. Like if I do well in a couple tournaments, I get to play in more tournaments and, and I get to feel like I'm part of it because I'll just get to play in a lot of things. And I think that's the biggest difference is uh, nobody cares about being in rivals. Like, sorry, Luis, I hate to break it to you, but they would <laughs> rather just get to play in cool magic tournaments. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, like you actually turned down the MPL. I wasn't uh, in the top 32, so I didn't even get an invite, right? Like, which I'm not complaining that I didn't get an invite. That's not what this is about. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I didn't finish well enough to get one. The The issue I had was given that I wasn't in the MPL, I just didn't feel like I there was much in organized play that was accessible to me. I didn't get to play in those tournaments. I had to sit on the sidelines and watch people play. And I can tell you as someone who's very competitive and used to performing at these levels – that that well, that wasn't very fun, but even worse than than that was all the people I know actually like you or like you know my friends who who were constantly like silver or gold or even platinum sometimes you know or or just played at a couple tournaments a year. There just wasn't any entry points, and I you know as someone who when I first started on the PT, this is I I, I did exactly that route. I queued for two PTs in two thousand six, queued me for the first PT in two thousand seven. I played in that PT. I, I managed to do well enough in the first two PTs in 2007 to play in the third. Once I played in the third, it queued me for the fourth. Once I played in the fourth, I got onto the train with the like platinum level equivalent. And that's what happened. That's kind of how I got there. If you go, if you took out some of the, the first steps there, then I never make it. And you know, that that's tough. I just, I, I remember my friends used to be excited to play in PTQs because then they could play in the pro tour. Now, the steps to get to compete against the best players are just not there. And we're not even saying like everyone needs a shot at being platinum. We're just saying people want to be able to play in the tournaments. And that's the part that I think is toughest. Like I, there's a lot we could talk about in terms of like actual, like, you know, league details and tournament structure, but like that doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think, I think what matters is that people just want to play in these tournaments and want to get the opportunity to do so. Yeah. And I, I think the big thing is in terms of like what, 
going forward one from OP. The biggest thing I just want is for the events to just be events that are like fun and cool to play in. And like, I don't care like that much about getting to play against the literal, like having like pairings and rounds and standings and making top eight. Like the, the structure of like the arena opens has just been like really dope and fun to play in. And they work super awesome for playing at home. And so I want more events like that, which are just really awesome to play in. I'll be honest. I played in the SEG like a week or so ago and props to those guys for putting it on and all that. It's not fun. Like I'm not going to do it again. Sitting around at home on arena waiting for round timers to end is just really boring. And I would much rather just get to play in an event with a queue. Yeah. I mean, once we go back to like paper tournaments where you're with all your friends and you can, you know, just sit around and, and draw with them in between rounds. Yeah, that that's fun. You, you, you know, you, you finish the round, you go find where, where you know, where, where are my pals? Where are the buds standing in the circle and talking about, you know, how unlucky they got in their round or whatever nonsense is going on. That yeah. that That is an easy way to kill 45 minutes or 30 minutes or 20 minutes in between a round. Losing your match on Arena and then just sitting there waiting for a Discord notification or a me- MTG Melee notification to pop up is like... Yeah, you, you, something's lost there, and the asynchronous tournaments are really good. I will definitely give them props for that. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're run absolutely – they're so much better than I could have imagined, but yet it's still just like, holy cow, when I get to just play on my time, on my schedule, it's so much better still. Oh, yeah, I t- totally agree. Uh, JC Stu asks, uh, what are the pros and cons to playing one deck and getting a lot of reps with it versus playing new decks to atap- adapt to a metagame? In, which, in what situations are each advantageous? And this is a really good question because this is actually something that really uh, puts you to the test in a lot of events where, you know, and we're talking every level of player where you've tested a bunch and you're like, you know, the, the, the classic to, to use like the, the, the Pro Tour example is like decks are due, you know, on Thursday and on Monday you're like feeling pretty good about the deck you've chosen, but then like, you get a ton of information in the last couple of days because that's when, you know, you get to see results from the weekend. People are really trying new stuff to try to push the envelope. And all of a sudden you see like a good deck that like, wait, this deck actually has some real potential. And some people on your team, you know, they, they put it together and they start play testing it. And you get this feeling in the pit of your stomach. Like, oh, man, am I going to have to switch decks? Like, is, is my is my choice not valid anymore? Do I have to learn this whole new deck? Oh, do I have to get cards for this deck? You know, we've forgotten about the getting cards part because we've been playing online for, you know, a year and a half now or whatever. But yeah, that, that's going to come back too. At least I hope I hope it is. And you you are, are put in that spot. And even people who are great and live, eat, sleep and eat, breathe magic, whatever, they still run into this decision where do I play a deck that I'll get a day or two of testing in but I haven't really played much before that I think is a better choice? Or do I stick with Eldrazi Tron and, and not switch to the, you know, the, the new Teamer Battle Rage deck or whatever the, the, the example might be? I don't have a good answer for it. <laughs> I think it is. If you are just getting like, if you feel like you're still like leveling up a ton, I think it's really good to just at least try. If, if you have the resources and re- if you're like, if you're a dedicated arena player and you just have like basically all of the important cards in standard, it is good to just play with a few games at least with all of the top decks you will just pick up things about how to value your cards and their cards that you will just not see on the other side of the matchup it's like the the example i made earlier about like you know having shadows verdict to turn that they played redain and it's like if if you you experiencing that on the if you're a dedicated mono white player you experiencing that on the sultai will be an easy way for you to pick up on things like 
oh, it's so much more obnoxious if they play Redain off curve, like the turn that they want to before they want to play a sweeper, than it is the turn that they were like looking to play their first like good removal spell, like Heartless Act or whatever. And it's just you're just going to pick up on that kind of stuff if you play the other side of matchups to some degree. So, um, I, you know, I think you covered the pros well about playing one deck, but I think it's really nice to be able to see what the experience is like on the other side. Yeah, I, I would say in general, you should be doing this some of the time in in either direction. If you never switch, you're losing out on on you know metagame shifts, and you're going to end up playing last week's deck, which is generally not a good place to be. You're going to get pummeled by the people who have adopted the the new technology. The, the the people playing mono white two weeks ago, right before people really kind of gave the deck due respect. But if you do this too often, you're too often going to be playing in tournaments where you don't really know what your cards do or how your deck works and you're losing equity. I remember uh, <laughs> actually a really good story from uh, PT Honolulu. This is the one that uh, Mark Herberholtz won. This was a long time ago. And the uh, the player next to me called a judge and asked what car- what the card in their hand was because they their, their friend had given them a deck and had a bunch of foreign cards in it. They just literally didn't know what the card in their hand was. So you don't, you don't want to be that guy. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> that that's not where you want to be. But it's it's kind of like the 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 thing about bluffing. If you if you can't remember the last time you bluffed, you're probably not bluffing enough. You know, you 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 want to expand your range, and, and your ultimate goal isn't even winning this particular tournament. I mean, or maybe it is. I, I don't know. But I would say for most players, the the ultimate goal is not do I win my next tournament. It's how do I continue improving in Magic, and then you know, converting that into tournament successes, into having fun, into you know, whatever whatever it ends up being. A lot of it stems from I don't want the short term gains. I want the long term gains. You'll see more long term gains by doing both of these things than just any one of them. Makes sense. All right, G Holes asks, why do we so rarely get top tier combo decks in standard? Are they too hard to balance? I remember Kathy's putting up results. Trickery seems a meme. So uh, the, we, we kind of covered this a little bit earlier, but combo is the scariest archetype to be good because when combo is good, it disengages more people than when any other archetype is good because there's a lot of unintuitive things going on, like how to attack it is not always obvious. Frequently, there aren't the right tools to attack it if it's going to be good. And it gets it strays the furthest away from the core gameplay uh, that magic does actually value of creatures threats, answers, attacking, not really blocking, but you know, that 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 sort of gameplay. And I think Wizards, I think correctly generally wants the game to be on the board, on the battlefield. They want that that to be well a, a lot of where the arena is. Uh and combo decks tend to get around that. So you're you're just more scared of combo decks, so you're going to be more conservative when it comes to printing combos and you're just not that often going to see eyes wide open combo decks being pushed into standard. Yeah, I mean, it. I think it depends sort of to some degree on what your definition of combo is. Frequently, people, when someone asks a question like this, I almost wonder, like, are you not counting all of the combo decks that were busted in the last year as combo decks? Because I certainly remember when Fires of Invention plus Yorian plus Luca was a thing, and that certainly felt like a combo to me. And right now we've got sort of the 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 goldspan dragon there's a couple of goldspan dragon combos between the rune combo deck and um i certainly think the the kazuo's fury um uh deck is a combo deck in standard so like there just are a bunch it's just not always like the sort of 
storm type of experience like Kathy's is where it's like, oh, my cards are chaining over and over again. So if, if that's the thing you're going for, yeah, they're going to be pretty, be pretty rarely tier one. But, um, you know, we, we, we get a fair amount of it. I mean, I think – and it it's – this stuff's hard to say exactly. Like, is Genesis Ultimatum for, like, Risen Reef? Is that when it's, like, when all the elemental stuff is going off? Is that a combo to you? So um, it, your mileage may vary, I guess, in terms of how much you think we get combo and standard. But I think we've actually gotten like, quite a bit in the last, like, two years especially. Yeah, cre- creature-based combo is a kind of good way to split the difference where – if your combo is disrupted by Doomblade, it's going to be get a, get a lot more leeway than if your combo requires literally duress or counterspell. Also, Scapeshift was definitely a combo deck. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly right. Like the the line between like big ramp and combo is sometimes a little blurry. So, all right, Gary Patrick eight zero four says, do you think special invitation supreme events is overall good or bad for Magic in the long run? Hall of Famers come to mind since they get no PT invites now. While others who may not deserve an invite get one. And I, I, I love when this comes up because just want to point this out because it is absurd. Um, Wizards said that PT invites our uh, Hall of Famers would get lifetime PT invites. And now they want to classify these new events as PTs, but they don't give the Hall of Famers any kind of invite or any sort of uh, track to qualification for them. Uh, technically, the Hall of Famers get invited to the arena qualifiers for the set championships. Oh, cool. But yeah, it's it's complete nonsense. And I say this as a Hall of Famer who, in this particular case, it doesn't affect me because I'm a member of the Rivals League. But trust me, I would think this was nonsense even if I wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Like, you can't tell me that the Kaldheim set championship is meaningfully different from a Pro Tour, which you took the invites away from that you promised lifetime. I'm going to keep beating this drum because it really, really bugs me. The fact that Kenji Sumura won a PTQ and is going to get to play at the Kaldheim set championship... Cool. I'm really glad Kenji's going to be there. Kenji Sumura is one of the all-time best Magic players. He's in Paulo's top 10, and I firmly agree with that. He shouldn't have had to win a PTQ. And can you imagine being the person who loses to Kenji in the finals of the PTQ? <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem like a, a, a great setup to me, you know? So, I, um, I, Yeah. I think overall special invites are good. It's good to get to um, reward people who have made extensive commitments and excel at a high level. Some amount of uh, increased access to premier level events they've clearly demonstrated the skill and dedication necessary for them i think the big thing is that if you're going to do it it's nice if you can do it in a way that is somewhat transparent somewhat systematic and um sort of uh, fair in the sense that like we're not just giving out invites to our favorite people in magic it's not like a popularity contest and you know that's one of the nice things about lifetime benefits for all of fame members but you know if you also have systems where Every once in a while, even if it's a popular personality from another game, as as long as it's something that is open to lots of people and we're not just sort of creating these systems to just get like one person in, I think that's okay. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't phrase it the way the question was asked. What about giving invites to people who don't deserve them? Like, I, I, I've never really thought about it in that context when, you know, if, if Ben Affleck started playing Magic definitely give him a PT invite. Like that's sweet, you know, like, and, and also giving it, giving it to, to kind of underserved populations who haven't been represented in, in magic because of how hard it is to get into magic and, you know, what, what the space looks like. I'm, I'm totally fine for that too. I, I think that you're right that it should be in, in some ways cast a wider net and that tends to, to balance out a little bit more fairly. But at the end of the day, I also view it as, you know, wizards, runs these tournaments, they pay for them. They they could decide what their goals are. And if they feel like their goals are best served 
by inviting a wide variety of people and, you know, that's what they do, then I don't really have an issue with that. I've never, never really had taken umbrage to special invites. I just care that they took away the Hall of Fame invites. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, that's the only thing I care about. But Yeah, like, obviously, it, they have to. The salute. They, here's the thing that they can't do, or not that they can't do, but that I think would be weird is if they were just like, "Hey, every random Hall of Famer, since the tournament's path to last place now, just if you can literally just log on to Arena, you just get a couple hundred bucks, and then you could just bomb out of the tournament." That's lame, but that isn't an excuse to not sort of figure out a system where the Hall of Famers who are willing to, you know, actually try, still can't like regularly get to play in these events. Yeah, I also think like it's just not that hard. Like when 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 we when we had players signing up at Grand Prix Vegas to get their appearance fee, then literally registering forty lands and not playing their rounds, they were just told, "Hey, you can't do this anymore," and they stopped doing it. Like well, Grand Prix is different thing than a limited invite event. It's true. It's true. But I'm just saying in general, like I don't buy that these these problems aren't solved. They're, they don't scale that much. We're, we're talking about thirty people, and if you feel that people are abusing the system, then you you literally know who all these people are. You can just send them an email and say like, "Hey, cut it out." <laughs> I, I I just yes. don't think it. Like these are all people who deeply respect Magic, and I'm not saying no one would ever sign up to get a $500 last place prize. But if but I think that if you felt there was issues there, then it wouldn't be impossible to solve, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. MM Sword asks uh, any good heuristics for using hand attack cards like Duress and Thoughtseize. Uh, well, one one thing I, I should I should mention is uh, Reed Duke actually did a deep dive about this too. Literally just on the card Thoughtseize. Fantastic read. You can go to channelfireball.com, look at his archives to find it. Um, there's a couple of rules of thumb. One is that, uh, first of all, you're going to often be siding these in and not have them in a game one situation. Of course, Thoughtseize is a main deck card, but Duress is largely a sideboard card. You're going to be playing a matchup, a matchup from turn one where you know what their deck is. And that'll give you a lot of different information as to when you should cast these things. When you're playing against a deck like Wilderness Reclamation or Fires of Invention, you're frequently going to want to cast these on your turn three right before their turn four. Because you want to, to basically cast the discard spell the turn before they're playing the card it's designed to stop to give them the maximum chances to, to draw the card that you're trying to make them discard. You you That's what you're trying to do with this card. That's the way to maximize it. The other thing to do, and this is more true of Thoughtseize, is to disrupt their curve, where in modern you're playing John, right? You just have Thoughtseize and Inquisition of Kozilek in your deck. You generally want to play this turn one because it not only can strip their one or two drop away and make it so their curve is worse, it also gives you the information of knowing, okay, I'm going to need to play Tapland and Lightning Bolt on turn two, or on turn two I should just play my Tarmogoyf before they have their mana leak up. And that helps you curve out while also uh, kind of disrupting their ability to curve and then lastly, when you're talking about decks that are trying to use these to force through a big spell, like Sultai in Standard, sides in three duresses against decks with counterspells, and there it's actually going to want to not play the duress until it has eight mana, and then it goes duress into uh, Emergent Ultimatum. So that's kind of a rundown on like the basic ways to use it. Do you have uh, anything to add, or did I just completely crush it? No, I mean, you completely... You did a good job there. Um, I would say, uh, if it's not obvious, um, you should probably try to figure out how to make it so that they can't spend their mana in a smooth way. Yeah. Like that is basically it. 90% of the time it's either going to be like, obviously I can't beat this card. I should take it. And then you just take that thing. But the rest of the time, if it's like, well, if I take this, they just literally won't be able to do anything on turn two. 
or on this turn of the game, they won't be able to play this when they really want to, and it won't set up this other play. So that's just, that's the sort of idea. In paper, what you can do is you can have all of their cards laid out and then like hover your finger over and like be like pointing at things. And then like if they start squirming in their seat when you point at a certain card, oh, then you on. probably know they really <laughs> like it. Yeah, that, that's what you should do. The, the actual good point you made is that if, yeah, if you look at their hand and they have like two copies of a, or two cards of the same cost and then two cards each of different costs, you're more than likely going to want to just take one of the cards they don't have a redundant cost costed card of. If they have two two drops and one three drop, it's often better just to take the three drops. So on turn two, they're spending two mana either way. Now on turn three, they, they get to play a two drop instead of a three drop. And that's usually worse for them. All right. And then Unholy Basil asks, when reading a metagame, what's your approach to choosing a deck? Do you generally think it's better to find the best deck or to find a deck with good matchups against the most played cards? Um, I think that uh, in general, so the, the I wouldn't describe thing as a deck having the matchup against the most played cards because I, I, I don't. Most played decks. I misread their question. Oh, okay. Yeah, that that makes a lot more sense. It it makes sense that the error was in translation, not in the original question asker, who was, of course, very good. I think in general, it depends on the field. Uh, One of the the things that, like, for example, this last weekend, Reed had success because he chose to play a deck that he thought was going to be good against the deck people were going to play to beat the most played decks because aggro was like the hottest coming into the weekend, right? Mono white and mono red. Multiple teams played mono red, mono white. Like we weren't the only ones who came to these conclusions, by the way. Another another one of the bigger testing teams for the weekend also played mono red. And uh, Matt Nass and Paulo and all those guys played mono white. So Reed chose option B, which is he played a deck that was good against the decks that he thought people would bring to beat the best deck. And that's metagaming, right? That's level two metagaming. In general, for these like larger scale events, like something like the arena opens or, uh, you know, the, the, the mythic qualifier weekends or what have you, you should probably just play the best deck. I think that the, the bigger the field, the more likely I am to want to play the best deck. At a PT, I'm more likely to want to play maybe a metagame call where, you know, cause everyone there is going to be trying to get, stay a level ahead. At something like a Grand Prix, I almost always just want to play the best deck because it's best deck for a reason. If, it, if you've correctly identified that it is the best deck, then often that there, the, it's because that deck is very, very good and people have to really go out of their way to beat it. And I find that the bigger the field, the more often people are just not going to be doing enough of that for you to try to, to, to go too many levels deep and, and prey upon that. Yeah, uh, I mean, listen to all the episodes of Constructed Resources some are so far because we've delved into this topic quite a bit in the past. Um, it's certainly not an, an easy or a simple one. I mean, you know, we, we often, oftentimes like to bring up the stat about how there's more possible magic decks than there are atoms in the universe. Um, so you're never going to get it. You're not, you're not going to get an easy answer to a question like that. Um, at the end of the day, I think it, the best approach is to play the deck that you're just winning the most with. Um, if you're playing on magic arena, you could just literally, you can find that out. And, I wouldn't stress too much more about it than that. Um, as long as you are feel like you are playing, if you are playing the deck well, it will probably do well for you in the tournament. And uh, I, it has been more common that I have seen players um, do outsized well at tournaments, whether they're pro tours or grand prix, because they really truly understood and could pilot a deck at a high level. And you don't want to like just 
pigeonhole yourself for the rest of your career on a certain deck and never try other things, never experiment, just get so focused on winning the most today, tonight. But it is good to just try to like get to a really high level of play with a single deck. Yeah, and I think that you 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 know you you don't want to go to the extreme where you know Guillaume Wafotapa, Hall of Famer, fell off the train because he just played control every single tournament of his life, and there was like a year where control was just really bad. You know, when he's such a talented Magic player, obviously, if he had just switched decks, he would have done better. But you also, you know, he does get a lot of mileage out of just being, you know, going to have like close to the best control build, and when control's good, he's going to do well. So it's kind of like a. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like buying a stock and holding it for the long term. You don't care about the swings. Ultimately, you feel like you're going to come out on top. I think that the the, the highest win rate is from being flexible overall. But yes, getting getting the value of just playing the same deck over and over and over again, and especially in like a non-rotating format, there's these, you know, the people who have played Delver for five years in Legacy or, or longer, the people who have been playing like Primeval Titan decks in Modern for the past four years, like... These, these people tend to do well in tournaments when those decks are good, and it, they are getting a pretty serious edge from that. All right. That will uh, do it. These are awesome questions. I'm sorry for anyone who we didn't get to your question. Uh, I would If we didn't get to your question and uh, you, you still would love to find the answer, my suggestion is wait like a day or two and then, and then tweet it at us. Or, or just tweeted at us not in response to that original thread. Just, you know, and, and I think because I didn't answer any of the questions in the thread because I knew we were going to use them on the show. But if we missed one of your questions and you want to hear our thoughts, you know, go ahead and shoot us a Twitter poke and, you know, we'll see what we can do. I don't guarantee that we'll answer every single question, but that is a good way to get your questions answered. And don't worry about re-asking the same one. If we didn't answer it before, it's like we're it's like a new question anyway. Uh, that will do it for this week. Uh any tournaments coming up, BK? I guess the well, what's your what's your next event? You got you got something you're playing in? Uh, there's like the showcase events this weekend on Magic Online, and so I'm probably gonna play in that. I played in a Pioneer prelim the other day to make sure I had enough QPs and got there with John Sacrifice. So might might be playing in uh, that event this weekend. Uh, otherwise, Vintage Cube is back up, so you know how that goes. Yeah, uh, Vintage Cube, of course, is uh, something I'm near and dear to my heart, and I'm sure I'll be playing that over the next week or so or two weeks. Um, so we will. We'll, we'll, I guess you can probably find uh, find me on Twitch in that particular case. Uh, you can always, uh, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, I'm at LSV on Twitter, and BK is at Abext. And uh, well, we will see you next week. All right, Luis. I thought we'd talk a little. We could we could hype up the expanse a little bit since you and I have both been jamming on that show. Uh, we we like to recommend some good shows and movies when we come across them. And Luis and I have both been binging the sci-fi show The Expanse. It started off on Sci-Fi Network. After season three, it moved to Amazon Prime, and you can watch all five seasons right now. And it's an awesome sci-fi show if you're into space exploration and like political sort of thriller type shows like game of thrones uh i think you'll really dig this show and i thought i'd say a couple of things that i really like about the show that so much it's set a couple hundred years in the future where earth has colonized mars and some of the um out other moons and uh pla- planets in the solar system and one of the things i love about it so much is sort of they, they do a lot of political type of stuff about this world where like mars and earth are constantly butting heads and the people who live on the asteroid belt are sort of the like the, the second class citizens of most of the solar system. But the show does a really good job of not making anybody like a true hero or a true villain. 
they really like give you a sense of what everyone's motivations are and it makes it a lot of fun and it sort of allows you to like sort of root for whoever you want to in the show. What what do you think about that part, Luis? Yeah, I, I, I think that it does a pretty good job of being nuanced where there's definitely sympathetic characters that you like to see win. You know, I, I, Amos, I think, is I think both of our favorite character. Yeah, uh, he was my number two thing on the list, my favorite parts of the show, Amos. Oh, yeah. But also almost every character, every character that has any significant amount of screen, screen time feels human. Like they they have their 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 foibles, you know. They they screw they screw up plenty of things. They do stupid things, and they do they do cool things too. They do they do awesome things, and it's the sort of thing that uh, when done well in a, in like a nice gritty show, like this show is definitely I would be described on the on the gritty side. You know, I think it can be really interesting and uh, make you feel like you're watching real people. They're not outside caricatures of like. You know, oh, th- this is the guy who does this. This is the funny guy. You know, this is the this is the, the the stoic killer. This is whatever. Like, there's just people trying to kind of make their way through the situation. They change their mind about things. They 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 get things wrong, and then later realize they got it wrong, and are like, oh shit, I got it wrong. You know that that sort of thing. I I am really enjoying the show. In fact, after uh, we record this, I'm gonna go watch some more episodes of it. We're not vintage cubing. All right, fine. <laughs> no, at the. The the one other thing I would say about reason why I'd really recommend this show is that if you like sort of immersive storytelling, this show is fantastic for it. It really just drops you into these different places and these different people's lives. And it's not there's not as much um, sort of hacky exposition where it's like, well, here are these people and this is why their lives are the way they are. It's just much more like you get to learn it through the conflict and the experiences that these characters are going through. So definitely check out The Expanse. Um, you know, we. This is actually a show that Jeff Bezos like kind of personally rescued. I don't know if you knew that part about the story. <laughs> no, but I still like it. Uh, yes. <laughs> to, to, to to go into to expand a little to expand a little on on that. I I really love shows that make also the the backdrop the the, the setting feel like a real setting too. Like I love shows that weave storytelling into just showing you details that don't matter for the story, but that make it feel like just. You know, like like the world that it's actually in. So it's not, you know, you know, like you see, you know, the old westerns, right? Where like all the buildings are just fake fronts and there's nothing behind them. You, you've had these shows where like it feels like the background is just kind of there, and it's just you're, you're trying to see, you're seeing what's going on. Yeah, I mean, sometimes they say that like New York is a character in this movie, and I would say that like on this show, Earth and Mars and Sari Station and Tycho Station, they all feel like they're actual like characters on the show, where the the, the the, the place that they are in, it feels like the characters are interacting with it in a, to a degree of of realism and nuance that is very appreciated. Yeah, there's there's one of the characters on the show, one of the main characters, uh, Naomi, and she she has a meaningfully different accent when she's talking to the like the the belters, the people from all the like moons and stuff. Then she's talking to the the characters from like Earth or Mars, and they never mention it on the show. No character ever remarks on it. But yeah, you, and her code, like her code switching. Is, yes, but like, she 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 speaks in the like local accent and slang when she's talking to like her people than when she's not. And the fact that they never point it out is so much stronger than if they had some of them like, "Oh, Naomi, you sound different today." You know, like that. They don't rub it in your face, but you do notice it, or you don't notice it. And it doesn't matter. And that's the, that's the kind of detail that that we look for. I think I think we probably convince people that we like the show at this point. <laughs> Yep, it's pretty great. So check out The Expanse. It's on Amazon Prime for free if you have it. So 
not getting paid anything for this. Just a good good show to uh, binge well, and catch up on. If you sign up for Amazon Prime to watch the show, just use the code CR. I don't know where you'd input it or what would happen, but use the code CR. Well, I all right. In all seriousness, if you don't have Amazon Prime and you sign up for Amazon Prime, you can use your Twitch Prime subscription to sub to Louise's Twitch channel. There you go. <laughs> Chilling mode activated. <laughs>